Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's episode was recorded at WonderCon in 2016. Enormous thanks to all of the panelists, to the hosts who ran the panels, who allowed me to record these. Also thanks to Katie and Aristotle at Nerdist, who ran around recording these for me. Uh, these are some really cool panels. I think you guys will enjoy them. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blecker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. Thank you for coming uh, to Inside the Writers' Room. Uh, I want to introduce you to um, our wonderful panel. Um, you know, we have been doing these enough years that we're gifted with an abundance, an overabundance of talent. Um, we have a, a great group of people assembled today, um, starting to my right, um, the uh, a writer, producer, story editor for uh, Star Wars Rebels. Uh, you may know his work from Star Wars The Clone Wars, also uh, Rusty and Big Guy the Boy Robot, uh, the X-Men the Animated Series, and um, I just can't say enough great things about Rebels. I could talk to you about Rebels this whole panel. How great, who watches Rebels? How great is that? So awesome. And next week, Ahsoka goes up against Darth Vader. Oh, my God. That's awesome. Anyway, wrong panel for this. I think it's cool. So anyway, um, next to Steve. Uh, we all know her from her auspicious debut on the Sci-Fi Channel, Volcano in New York. Uh, from there, there was nowhere to go but up. And... Uh, this is coming from somebody else who made a living writing for Sci-Fi Channel movies. That for a was while. reviewed by People Magazine as dumb but fun. Dumb but fun. <laughs> Which will also be the title of my memoir. <laughs> Sarah, of course, has gone on to great acclaim with such shows as Parenthood and About a Boy, and also um, got her uh, start working for Cool People on The Middleman. Uh, and we are thrilled to have Sarah back with us And you've been doing this for a lot of years, this yeah. panel now Thanks to Javi Who is not here Who's celebrating Easter, imagine that <laughs> What? Um, next to uh, Sarah He's confused It's Easter Saturday yeah, it's, you know. He has a baby now, there are times suck That's what I learned writing on Parenthood yes. He needs to man up I got two babies <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, <laughs> Ashley Miller. Ashley uh, wrote for such shows as Fringe, Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and is currently consulting producer on Black Sails. You know, and occasionally moonlights as a feature writer doing such small independent films as Thor and X-Men First Class and is currently writing the remake of Big Trouble in Little China. He's trying to get on Showdown in Little Tokyo. Yes, uh, absolutely, dude. That next movie's him, so underrated. Uh, all I have to do is say one word, which always excites the audience. Uh, Firefly. <laughs> That's not fair. That's not fair. I just feel the energy flagging. I say, Firefly! <laughs> there you go. Jose Molina's worked on such shows as Firefly. Um, <laughs> The Vampire Diaries, and most recently, Agent Carter. <laughs> like almost everybody on this panel at some point worked on Castle. 
not wrong. That's a li- our little <laughs> fraternity sorority. Um, and next to um, Mr. Molina is the talented and lovely Amy Berg. Amy is currently yeah. showing. Just for the name. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Beware, Bergopolis. <laughs> uh, she's currently showrunning Counterpart for Stars. Um, she worked on such shows as Eureka and um, Da Vinci's Demons. And uh, we're thrilled to have Amy back. Thanks, buddy. And last but certainly not least. No, not least. I said not least. The most. The most. <laughs> you may know her uh, from her uh, co-starring role in the movie Free Enterprise. No. Uh, um, now, uh, she not only a writer-producer on such shows as The Vampire Diaries, Castle, Grey's Anatomy, which one of these isn't like the other, uh, <laughs> Ugly Betty, um, but she was the showrunner on Haven and recently finished a stint on The Flash. Recently, uh, John Landgraf, who's the head of FX, said uh, to uh, receive a lot of attention that there is too much television, that we've reached the point at which uh, there is too much television on the air and that there is going to be a major retrenchment in the foreseeable future because it's unsustainable. Is that why Netflix is premiering 60 well, new series this year? This is... Hence <laughs> my question. Why is John Landgraf wrong? <laughs> Jose? Um, I, I guess Landgraf isn't. I was thinking of the Netflix guy who, uh, who also had some very... Um, prophetic words to say um the it's awesome we can all we all have dvrs now so we can most of us can tape two or even more tv shows we have netflix we have hulu we have amazon we have as many methods of watching our shows as there are shows so you know you used to watch a show a night now you can watch five shows a night what's wrong with that wait but how do you watch five shows a night and still have a life because you can because you don't have a life. No? You don't no. have a life. No? What, what is this life you speak of? It's life bullshit. So you say Netflix uh, logo should be, don't get a life. <laughs> Plus they're 45 Fair minutes. Point. It's not five hours, it's five episodes. Well, you can do it in like three and a half. Sarah, what do you, I mean, what do you, what do you think? What, and what, what, what we do you... were actually just discussing this over drinks before the panel because this is such a change. So, woo! Um, but this, dumb, is, but fun. this is a completely changing landscape for us as well. And sort of for the first time in my career, I don't know what the hell is going on out there. It used to be that there were, a couple years ago, there started to be that there were TV shows I hadn't heard of. Now there are networks I haven't heard of. So I do wonder at some point there you know we're gonna have to separate the wheat from the chaff but at the same time it allows for these like absolutely wonderful niche shows and especially at a place like WonderCon where we're all here to let our freak flags fly there might not have been shows that could have ever been produced 10 years ago that everybody in this room is going to love and I think that's pretty cool I mean, although it's also terrifying I mean, Gab, what do you think I mean even Comic Con has a channel now many of you probably what? read that Comic Con <laughs> announced that they have con- not Con TV that's the other channel next on Comic Con TV people who smell it's just <laughs> it's like they're in front of you in line I, so I just, you know is there a law of diminishing returns you know are we going to see the bubble or, you know, is this going to continue exponentially in terms of the growth of original programming? It depends on how much the shows cost and how much money the networks can make out of them. I mean, thank you, Gab. 
<laughs> oh, that no, wasn't a, that wasn't an open question. That was deeply was, insensitive. No, that, that was exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> so I, I'm Gab. She's Jose. <laughs> no, I think um, I think Jose's totally right, and but there, I think there is a, a bit of a diminishing return because, you know, there is a, a factor like. Look, I don't have a life either, but there was a time where I could sample every television show out there and see what I liked. Now, like Sarah said, like the whole seasons go by of shows, and I'm kind of, I can't catch up. I come home and I look at my DVR, and it's just bursting, and I'm, I'm like, I think there's some actual psychological name for it now, where you look at your DVR and it has so many shows recorded that you can't cope, you shut down, and you do something else. What's it called? FOMO. Fear FOMO? Out. Yeah, fear of missing out. Is what yeah. we have. And so I think, well, if that's happening to us here who love television so much, like what happens when middle America just kind of loses the ability? To, to kind of keep up with what's going on, do they just kind of check out of the whole thing? Oh, I'm not. I'm not worried about people checking out. Um, I mean, I think there's always going to be uh, people have to divide the time the way they want to divide it between the shows that they they want to watch. And at the end of the day, for me, more TV means more jobs, and mm-hmm. and and I love that. Yeah. More opportunities, more more ways in for, for, for talented people to get their voices heard, um, you know, a, a way in um, for more diverse voices that, that didn't exist before and when there was only one pipeline. So um, I, think it's, I think it's awesome and more TV. And, you know, that all sounds great, but is that really what's happening? The word that we keep hearing, you know, anybody who's been out, out to pitch recently knows the word, you know, the operative word is sticky, and noisy, you know, and that means either a big, big showrunner or a big property or IP, you know, somebody who just comes in with a really cool, quirky, interesting idea who maybe doesn't have a huge track record isn't likely to get their show on the air. So, you know, how hard, even with this explosion of new shows, is it to get a show on the air and what do you need to make that happen? Ashley. So to kind of go to that point quickly. There was a book that was written back like in 1990-something early called Nichecraft. And that was a book for business geeks. And basically, the book was about how in so many different market areas, markets were going from being what was called fragmented, or I'm sorry, from segmented to fragmented. And what that essentially means is that the market goes from a position where the people who provide the content or provide the service control pricing to a system where the customer, where the consumer controls pricing, controls access, right? So what Landgraf is talking about is a scenario where people like FX or the broadcast networks who were born in an era of a fragmented market where they could control um, what went out, they could roughly control the pricing for advertising, they, they could quantify all that and make sense of it, are competing in a market that has essentially become fragmented. And that's the space that Netflix um, is operating in. Amazon is operating in that space. So FX and Amazon slash Netflix slash, you know, um, Garbage Pail Kids TV, Hulu, like, you know, the Comic-Con TV, whoever is, like, putting out content now, like, in that space, they're living in different worlds. They have different requirements. So I would think that the problem of getting a show on the air is dependent on who you're trying to sell to. Um, because you know, if you're in Netflix, the amount of money that you're gonna wanna spend or your need for something to make it sticky, right? What does that mean? It's you're trying to penetrate the consciousness and kind of find the niche 
find the, the, that little market fragment that is going to make you popular and allow you to make a, a sound financial decision based on your creative decision. Um, that's why that stuff is becoming important. I don't know that um, the broadcast networks or the, the cable networks like FX necessarily have an answer to what's going on. So it'll be interesting to see how that development cycle moves forward. But as far as you know, the rest of them go, I think that the sky is kind of the limit. They're just looking for what's interesting and what's going to grab an audience. I mean, Gav, as you prepare to go out you know, and pitch new shows, you know, what are you hearing that the marketplace is looking for and how difficult do you think it is to you know, sell an original piece of content? I want to answer for Gav again. I want to answer for Jose. Well, you know, it, it's funny because it's it's different, but it's the same. I mean, every year you go out and like something does well, and so all of a sudden everyone wants that, you know, so kind of version of that. Right now, everyone wants dark, edgy, important, like you said, splashy, um, something that makes it the show kind of stand out. Because I think there are so many shows. There has to be a reason, like, why am I watching this one at this time? So they need something with a, um, you know, kind of a very strong personality that's going to really suck people in. It's interesting because every, so much stuff, like you were saying, is uh, previous properties. Everyone wants something that has been a comic book, a movie, a, you know, a novel. Um, people, I think, are a little scared of original ideas because they can't instantly tell the audience what that story is going to be about. Um, and I think that's just part of, there's so much out there, you have to figure out a way to kind of rise to the top. And Steve, I would ask you, you work, uh, you know, in a corner of a very large franchise, a major cinematic television universe. How difficult is it when there's so many moving pieces, in this, in this case the Star Wars universe, you know, to write without sort of contradicting or teeing up something in the, in the movies and, you know, all those moving parts. And I know that there's a story group at Lucasfilm, but, you know, sort of juggling all that. Well, I mean, I, all of us involved in the writing are very steeped in Star Wars lore and mythology. We're very familiar with all the movies and, and a lot of the books and, and other stuff. And we have, you know, some of our, our big producers are in the room with us. Curie Hart, who's basically Kathy Kennedy's number two at Lucasfilm, is in a lot of these meetings with us and making sure that we're... You know, if there are opportunities to tie our show into movies, say Rogue One, you know, we'll we'll look for ways where maybe we can cross pollinate with with the film properties in order to to you know kind of tell stories uh, together. Um, and and as Mark mentioned, we have this we have uh, representatives from the story group like Pablo Hidalgo in the room with us who are just walking encyclopedias of this stuff and they can you know correct us or come up with trivia and stuff uh, you know like that on the fly to to make sure everything's working together um i was going to add to what they were saying about this attractive this marketplace a lot of the the field that i work in action venture animation is really dependent on pre-existing name brand properties whether they're the marvel uh spin-off shows or the dc shows or Star Wars or Transformers stuff like that. There's that pre-sold aspect to those shows and in some cases those TV shows are designed to keep interest alive in the film franchises between the years that the films come out. Um, But there's another element that animation has going for going for it which is the um uh marketing the uh, toy toy sales which are a big part of uh of generating uh income uh for those shows so it's maybe there's a, a little bit more of a cushion there we have this other sort of revenue stream that some of these other shows don't well i think everyone on this panel takes great pride in being called a writer 
but anyone who works in television is doing a lot more than just writing. And I know the name of the panel is... What is the name of the panel? <laughs> <laughs> so, Island's Production and Post Oman. Yeah, okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Chase. Um, yeah, so anyway, um, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about, you know, as showrunners or co-execs, um, what we do in terms of... Um, shepherding a show from sort of start to finish and, and maybe somebody can talk about you know where the process begins somebody else pick up where it continues and of course you know it's, it's it's a cliche to say that you know editing is the final rewrite but that's very much true and talk a little bit about shepherding the show through the post process before delivery you know Steve this is less a question for you because animation functions very differently but um, you know maybe Sarah you can talk about you know where the, the seed is planted well, um, when you're a TV writer, you are a producer as well. And um, I have spent many years trying to explain this to my mother because um, on every episode of any episode of television that I'm involved with, I have a, a producer credit. And my mom calls me every week and's like, but I thought you were a writer. And then I have to explain all the things that I'm about to explain to you. <laughs> things like we're involved in casting and we're on set. And you're on set really to make sure that your vision as a writer is what's getting there at the end of the day. Because, like you said, editing is the final rewrite. And so th sometimes you'll see things on set and they don't work and we'll have, to, we'll have to change them on the fly. Sometimes you'll get into the editing room and the rhythm of a scene is off and so you'll have to work with the editor to change the rhythm. And so that's why we have the fancy producer credit, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Basically, you have done an outline. It's gone to the network. It's been approved. Um, you, re you wrote your script. Um, what happens then, Ashley? Then there's a lot of screaming and panicking and sleepless nights. <laughs> um, actually, that's kind of true. Uh, you know, it's, it's really kind of the beginning of the whole process because what happens after you've had the great idea and you've written the great script after, you know, 11 months of trying to break the episode? Or that's kind of how it no, that's feels. that's star is 11 months. <laughs> hey, stars is fantastic. Amy loves her job. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, once you're kind of through all that and everything seems perfect, you discover rather quickly that it's not perfect. Um, and you have to start making compromises. And the thing that you have to learn, the skill that you have to, you have to develop, really, is to be agile and be flexible and to kind of like it when people kill your children in front of you. <laughs> um, or maybe just get used to the idea that your child that you thought was beautiful is going to look like somebody else's child. Um, or that you'll have to make changes to their face. Uh, but at the end of the day, your name will still be on the child, and your mother will still be confused by everything that it does. So, Jose, so now this, the script has been approved. You have to be, you know, in most cases, um, if you're the writer, you're going to be on set. Not always. Some showrunners don't want their writers on set. Mm -hmm. um, but let's say you're with one of the showrunners who does, or you're running your own show and you're going to be on, on set. Tell us what that week is like, that eight days, or some cases less, some cases more. What was it? Screaming, panic? Yeah, screaming, panicking. <laughs> uh, it's a lot of that. The, the hours are the most um, unsettling things 
for me as a writer, because as writers we work relatively uh, civilized schedule. The crews that work, the cast and the crew who work on the show, um, show up for work at, I don't know, maybe 5 a.m. on Monday morning, and then they work 12 to 14 hours a day every single day until they wrap at the end of Friday's shoot, which is usually Saturday. somewhere somewhere <laughs> between, on, a, on the early side, 2 a.m. on the late side when the sun comes up on Saturday morning. Um, so that's challenge number one uh, about, that's your first adju- adjustment as a writer. The second is that a writer on set is mostly there uh, to fix shit that goes wrong. Um, you're not there as a spectator. You're not there to revel in the wonderful thing that you've written. <laughs> Nobody looks to you for anything. And that's why showrunners don't want writers on set, because they're, they're not very often needed. But when they're needed, something is wrong. So you're sitting there stressing out, hoping that nobody will talk to you. (laughs) Because if they do, you have to fix something. Um, And like Ash was saying, you have to be agile on your feet, um, and you kind of almost have to enjoy the, yeah, come at me, what's wrong, I can do it. Um, and, uh, And that involves anything from the director to the cast to... Um, wardrobe, hair, makeup, whatever it happens to be. You know, you, sometimes you have to drop scenes and you have to make that executive decision. We don't have enough hours in the day to shoot all the pages that we thought we would. You have to drop a scene, which means you have to take a scene out of the script and say goodbye to it forever. And you have to do it right there with 150 people waiting for you to make that decision. Um, and you can't you, be waiting long. You clench up your sphincter and you go, that one! Yep. My, my best one was dead of winter in New York City crying in an ATM vestibule because my pen had frozen. And so I ran into the ATM vestibule because that was like the only place I could get warmth and rewriting a scene for an actor who had just yelled at me. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was dumb fun. Yeah, and so, you know, I've, I've been fortunate to work on some shows with some really good actors and Firefly. For, Firefly. <laughs> Sleepy Hollow cast was great. Agent Carter, best cast ever. Um, but I've also been fortunate enough to work with a bunch of dicks. Um, and I, say, I say fortunate because it um, trains you to know how to deal with crazy people. And sorry, Chase, but all actors are crazy. <laughs> um, so you have to figure out how to You're deal lovely. with them and adjust lines and... See, now she everything needs about you is perfect. But see, every actor is crazy in their own special way, exactly so you never right. actually can get a beat on it. Yeah, uh, but you know, so you. you but there some... are types. You can you can you categorize can them. Find the yeah, type, but then and we're all crazy too. So let's not throw too yeah. many stones. <laughs> <laughs> they got to deal with our special. Hey, the actors set. have their own panel. This is yeah, ours. exactly. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Such a star fucker, Watson. <laughs> We love you, and, Chase. And, and, and Gav, I would ask you, what is the purpose of having writers on set? Um, obviously, you know, one thing that's important is that directors are, quote-unquote, the meat of the week. They may not have been with the show. They don't know the tone of the show. Actors may have changes. Tell us a little bit about why, as a showrunner, you want your writers on set. Or do you? Is he talking to me? Or I'm you? talking to Gav. Okay. Okay, yeah. 
I mean, it's, it's a lot of what people say. It's a lot of kind of, um, uh, you know, management, a lot of things going wrong. But sometimes it's not even things going wrong. Sometimes the director is just there for the week. And even if they're a great director and they kind of know the show, when you're sitting in the writer's room, you will have planned out probably six or eight episodes ahead of what you're shooting, maybe more, hopefully. Um, so when an actor decides, oh, I don't want to say this this way, and the director's like, okay, that's fine, what they don't realize is that is really important to something that's going to happen two months down the road on the show. So if someone who understands that isn't there, then you're, you know, you're back home like thousands of miles away and you're watching the dailies and you realize, wait a minute, we didn't drop that incredibly important clue that we need for this thing and it, it, it all kind of snowballs. So you have a little bit of that. Um, I, I mean, think is it also- worth saying, Gab, also directors don't want to piss off the cast because they know they're not coming back to do that show again if... You know, an actor says, I don't want that director on this show again. So they tend to take the side of the actor, and someone has to be the grown-up in the room, which more often than not is the writer. Go there, there is some of that, but I think it's also the director is there. He is a, he's there for the visual part of the medium. He is there to make the show look as, as wonderful as possible. And, you know, some of them are better than or worse with actors, but, you know, you, you look at a director's script. He's not like, ooh, you know, right here is where we really need to get make sure the story lands. He's thinking... I have enough money for a crane for this shot, so I'm going to do a sweep over the whole village. And you're like, wait a minute, this is an intimate love scene. Why, why is there now a crane in the shot? <laughs> um, so, you know, that, and I respect that. That's their job, and that's going to what makes the show look amazing. But you kind of have to have both people there, someone who says, you can have your crane, but we really need a close-up on the face while they kiss, because we can't see that from, like, 3,000 miles up in the air. <laughs> um, but you could have a point, too. They also, you know, they, they, they have a very delicate diplomatic balance that they're treading. They have to keep the producers happy, the actors happy, the network happy. It's a lot of people to keep and out. coming on time. Amy, you want to add anything oh, yeah, to that, that before too. we yeah, talk I mean, about I, the next I think, step? I think to the actor's credit, Chase, um, <laughs> uh, they have to deal with different director personalities coming in every two weeks. Um, and, and, so, and they have to adjust in the same way that directors have to adjust and writers have to adjust. Um, and and that's, that's its own challenge. Um, and, and as far as writers being on set, um, you know, the best thing about being a boss lady is that I can ask other people to do that for me. (laughs) Um, but it is, it is a, it is a balancing act. Um, fortunately, if you are show running, um, people do come to you and you are the final answer and, and even the director reports to you. Um, and the actors report to you when you come on set, like you become the focal point um, of for information. Um, and uh, but as as a writer on set representing the showrunner's vision, um, your job is is essentially to safeguard the script and to make sure, as Gabby said, that things don't get changed um, by the actors or by the directors and how he wants to shoot something that then affects things uh, farther down the line. Um, and, and to also sort of report back and spy uh, for the showrunner uh, if there's any uh, personality conflicts that are happening on set. Well, there's actually something we haven't talked about, which yep. is there are more personalities than just the writer, the director, and the actors. Um, there's also the crew. And often what can happen is the substitute teacher syndrome where the director shows up for a week and the director's priority is he wants to keep working um, or she, um, he knows, or she knows, that he or she will be dealing with all of these people, male and female, on some other show or 
Actually, if you take the S out of that, it becomes a hoe, and that's not cool. Um, <laughs> on some other show. Uh, so the crews kind of behave according to who the director is if there actually isn't an adult on set. Um, so, you know, you have to be aware of that as well to get the most out of them. I mean, look, the, you don't hire a crew because you think they're not going to do the job. You hire them because you believe that they will, but they're also human um, and they also know who they work for, and they know they don't work for that guy. Um, he's just asking them to do stuff. So part of your job is to show up sometimes and just support that guy, even if you want to strangle him or her. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes there, you know, you're talking about the personalities of the other people. The personalities of the crew, you have 100, 150 people working on the show who are working the hours I described earlier, sometimes there's going to be frequently, there's going to be clashes within the crew. I was on a show one time where the hair department wanted to murder the wardrobe department. <laughs> that was every show. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, exactly. And, and I learned that, that those two trailers needed to be kept apart, like children in the schoolyard. So part of the job of me as a writer-producer was to be in there and arbitrate and go, you win this one, you go sit in the corner. And that, sometimes that's, that's the job of a writer is to play peacemaker. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get to post, I'm going to take a brief commercial break. Um, we always do Twitter handles last, but I know some people like to tweet from the panel, and it also sounds like we're wrapping up. So I want to do a quick... Everybody tell us what your Twitter... Um, so if they want to follow you or learn more about you and, or say anything about the panel or about the microphones, um, <laughs> they can do so. So, Gab, what, what's, your, what's your Twitter... TV Gab. TV like television, G-A-B like Gab. Uh, I am Bergopolis, as he said earlier. Beware the Bergopolis. <laughs> uh, and I'm Jose Molina TV, because otherwise, Jose Molina, you get the baseball player. And I'll also <laughs> mention that uh, Jose has a wonderful podcast oh, called Children of Tendu. So good, guys. <laughs> so good. So, if you want to have the experience of this panel um, every couple of weeks in your home, you can play the home edition, which is uh, Jose and Javi's podcast, Children of Tendu. And you can follow uh, us on Twitter at Children of Tendu, and you can follow Javi at OKBG. No, don't plug him. If he can't bother to show up. Yeah. Yeah, I just got a text while we were here, by the way. He's with his parents celebrating Easter. I don't care. <laughs> I, he should be here. Look, there, we got two chairs open. Not for Elijah. It ain't Passover. So, I mean... Next time, now he'll be at San Diego. Anyway, uh, yeah, so that's Javier and Ashley. Uh, some call me Ashmaster Zero. That's Ash as in Ash, not like ass. And Zero spelled, not the zero. Is there an Ass Master Zero? You know what? <laughs> God damn it, I hope there is. I hope he's out there somewhere looking out for the rest of us. Sarah? I have Sarah Watson, 42. It's a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy thing. Um, if you try to follow Sarah Watson, it's like some 18-year-old in Texas. Um, and she's got a really great Twitter feed. I'm sure. <laughs> Her Instagram's even better. Um, Stephen? And I'm just uh, at uh, Stephen with an N, Melching, and uh, the writer of Superheroes, Robots, and Space Wizards. You'll know me by the uh, Power Droid action figure that is my avatar. That looks a lot like you. Um, <laughs> And I'm at Mark A. Altman, and um, 
the uh, book that I'm shamelessly promoting, uh, The 50-Year Mission, is at, at 50-Year Mission, which is an oral history of Star Trek, which we talked about ad nauseum last night. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to plug it even more today, except you should go on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and uh, do the pre-order right away, because it's the best book ever written about a television show ever. <laughs> Um, oh, wait, that, no, that's now. Okay, anyway, moving on. Um, Everybody say Firefly for Twitter. <laughs> if you say it three times, Firefly will appear. <laughs> Firefly, not, Firefly, Firefly. Not if Fox has anything to say about it. <laughs> you know, anything's possible these days. Like, is it shocking, like, some of the shows that have got, I mean, who would have ever thought Twin Peaks? How freaking great is that? Fuller House, people? Yeah. No? Fuller no? House. I want to watch Fuller House about the writer's room at Star Trek. That's, what, that's the Fuller House I'm interested in. And apparently in. there's the, the clamor for the return of Prison Break. <gasps> <laughs> apparently there. there. That's, that's where the clamor's coming from, that guy. Oh, my God. Who knows? They'll even bring back Battlestar Galactica one day. Oh, they did. Um, Steve Melching. Um, let's talk about Post. In your case, in a lot animation. of posts, a lot of posts post in animation. Now we go through a similar process. A, you know, we have a writing process that's probably very similar to what you guys do, and uh, we spend a lot of time on our scripts, trying to get them in as good a shape as we can, like like anyone. And it goes to our production department, which, rather than sort of rotating uh, freelance directors, we typically have staff directors that work full time and just rotate through uh, scripts. Um, they will. Uh, we will then go into the studio with our cast, our voice cast. We go through voice casting, and we have our regular cast. And most of the shows I've worked on, we do uh, what's called ensemble recording, where we have most or all of the regular cast in the booth at once, which is a lot of fun. And uh, we go through the script scene by scene and, and do the dialogue. And sometimes the actors uh, come up with lines that are better than what we have in the script or more interesting, and we record those. And... Uh, all that material goes to the directors. They do their storyboards and create uh, an animatic, which is a crude uh, quasi-motion picture version of the episode uh, cut to time. Uh, sometimes it's just 2D drawings. Sometimes, in the case of Rebels, they do some. They have some crude 3D uh, CGI-type programs. And um, we can take a look at uh, a rough, a crude version of what the episode will look like with, with uh, sound effects and temp music and stuff. And uh, that gives us a great opportunity to do a rewrite so we can see what's working and what's not working. And we can pull scenes out. We can add lines of dialogue if, if we're getting lost in the story or we find that we're over-explaining something. We, we generally pull a lot of stuff out. And... Uh, then it goes to full animation, and then we get one more chance to uh, add ADR dialogue to address any lingering concerns uh, uh, for clarity, or or, um, or if we want to add a joke or something, it gives us another opportunity uh, before the mix. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. You're still writing in post because as the cut comes in, there's dialogue you need. You put on the back of somebody's head. You need dialogue to clarify something, ADR, voiceover. There's a, uh, the writing does not stop, and of course the editing process. What happens, Ashley, after the picture is locked? There's still more crying and <laughs> screaming and panicking um, because then there's like nothing you can do. Um, well, actually, that's not true. Then you can do things like you can unlock it. And if you want to ever like just kind of watch a human being age 10 years in like 10 seconds, just tell an executive that you want to unlock a cut. Yeah. Um, they effing love that. Um, 
No, I mean, locked basically means that everything is down, everything is done, everything is what it needs to be, has to be, because P.S., you're out of money and you're out of time, um, which is why everybody freaks out, because it costs a lot of money to go back and fix things that you don't have money or time for. Um, but, you know, then you're kind of on the road to knowing what it is that you have. And it's really just about making it pretty, making it sound beautiful, um, you know, making everything look the way that you want it to look and not look like, you know, kind of it was when it was in the dailies and you were kind of horrified. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's really just all about kind of putting together that final presentation that you guys understand as the show that you love and not as the long national nightmare that we endured getting it to well, that Well, Amy, place. I wonder if you can talk about the importance of color timing in the sound mix because a lot of people don't realize how, you know, that is really where the show is finally made. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, that process for you as a showrunner and also, you know, how important sound is, um, you know... Yeah, I mean, color timing, for those who don't know, is sort of like how you create the final look of the show. And if you want to make any adjustments um, to the tonal quality of it, uh, that is your opportunity. And and to make things consistent, because oftentimes you're shooting in different locations on different days, um, and, you know, the lighting won't necessarily be the same, uh, and you want a consistent look for the show throughout every scene in every episode. Um, Sound mix is, is, is... vitally important um it's you don't really know how important it is until you you see how the sausage is made and how when you're watching a locked cut without a mix (laughs) it's the worst thing you've ever seen and you're so disheartened and you're like oh my gosh how is anybody going to find this entertaining and then uh the sound mixers get in and then it becomes this most wondrous alive creature um, that you're excited for people to see, um, and it's it's in the final mix. There's you know a, there's a sound mix that the process it, it's a process that the episode goes through, and then there's a thing called a final mix, where you sit down and the showrunner is is in the room, and we go through meticulously every every frame and every. Um, Digibyte, I don't know, that's a word. Um, <laughs> of, uh, nowadays. Uh, yeah, it didn't used to be. Um, uh, of, of the sound mix and, uh, and make all of your final tweaks. And, and there are a lot of changes that I tend to make in a final mix where I'll, I'll drop music out earlier or, or have it stay later. Uh, it's a conversation I have with uh, the composer of every show I've been on is that I always like their... Um, cues is what it's called to last a little longer in case there is uh, an opportunity where I need some time to cover something in case we're running uh, short or running long uh, visually um, it's always good to have a couple more seconds to play with um, and the final mix is where all of that comes together the the actual sound effects um, the actual dialogue and ADR replacements and the composed music all comes together in one final piece, and you're, and you're trying to make all of them fit together in, in, a, in a perfect way, in an hour. <laughs> before I, you know, I'm going to do something we haven't done in a while, which I'm going to open it to questions, and before we do that, um, so think about your questions. Um, I want to ask, we started the panel by talking about this being the golden age of television, and, you know, is it coming to an end? Um, what is a show that you're watching right now that you would recommend to other people, that you're excited about, that you think is really the apex of the medium, that is just something that's really exciting, 
and that you would recommend people watch? And maybe it's particularly an example of good writing, uh, Steve Melching, other than Rebels. Well, I mean, I love Better Call Saul. I, mean, it's a, <laughs> I, love, I love Black Sails that Ashley's on. I love Vikings. I mean, there's just... You know, there's just a... You have a, a type. <laughs> <laughs> the Americans. <laughs> Togetherness on HBO, which I'm so canceled. sad canceled. just yeah, canceled. got canceled. Oh. I think it's such real family drama. And one, this is going to be weird. Is anyone else watching Younger? I think it's so, it's just fun and great and vibrant, and it doesn't take itself seriously, and I love that. Ashley, Ashmaster Zero. I'm watching a lot of HGTV, man. <laughs> I'm loving Flip and Flop, Flip or Flop, and, uh, you know, some of those people are just adorable. Um, you know, and by the way, I think Tiny House Hunters is just a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic show, um, and uh, I can't recommend that one highly enough. Jose? Uh, I'm really into this uh, tiny little show that probably nobody has heard of called Game of Thrones. Uh, I am obsessed with that show. I am currently halfway through the fifth of the five books. I decided I was going to read all of them before the new season started, and I'm getting there. Uh, I also really dig Vikings, um, and I've also recently gotten into uh, The Hundred. Wow, lots Maybe. of Hunter fans. Um, I am—I uh, couldn't be more looking forward to the return of new episodes of Black Mirror. Oh. Um, on the comedy side, um, Broad City is pretty awesome, and uh, and I am a uh, unapologetic uh, lover of Rick and Morty. Jab. International House Hunters is my. <laughs> um, also, the Property Brothers is re- they're ooh, so really cute. Good. They're so and cute. they're twins. Isn't that um, ridiculous? I know it's amazing. <laughs> I, one is a realtor and the other one is. The, I, I'm loving what they're doing. Uh, what Netflix is doing right now with with the Marvel stuff. I love Daredevil. I love Jessica Jones. Um, a show that I, I watched uh, recently and um, have been watching that was a little unexpected. How much I liked it was Limitless. I know. It's, <laughs> Yeah, it's like network. I, I really love the way it's directed. Um, if people have not seen The Fall, it's a British series. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're missing out. Really, really good. Really creepy. Really creepy. And I know it's a cliche at WonderCon to say this, but I'm just really digging the people versus O.J. Simpson. Oh, I yeah. <laughs> freaking amazing. Definitely the Americans better call Saul. And, you know, when I got the gig uh, as co-EP on The Librarians, I was told to watch Doctor Who, which, uh, to be honest, I hadn't watched since Tom Baker was on it. Uh, and I, and I, I only know that there were these huge lines at Comic-Con and I, that I used to make fun of. But then I watched it, and I loved it. <laughs> so, uh, big fan of Doctor Who. Um, questions in the few minutes that we have left. Yes. <laughs> Go 
going, going back to my mom for a second, when I told her I had a meeting and the feedback before I got from my agent was, she'd be great in the room. My mom was like, what does that mean? So um, you and my mom have the same question. She's fun. So um, it depends on your level, honestly. If you're coming in at, at the staff writer level and the low levels, um, you want to be really supportive and ha- come with great ideas. When you're at the high level, your job is not to say no. Your job is not to shoot ideas down. When you're at the higher levels, um, it's, again, just being an idea machine, being able to roll with the flow, being able to go where the showrunner wants you to go, because you do. You serve at the pleasure of the president. That's what they always say on Children of Tendu. See, I listen. Um, well, and, and the other thing, too, is that you have to, what we call, read the room before. Uh, I, I like to spend the first week sort of getting to know the different personalities in a room, um, because oftentimes that will dictate your own performance. Uh, because uh, it is a perform- performance. I mean, like, you know, being writers, and, and the reason we want to be writers is, you know, we, we are uh, lonely, thoughtful people. And, uh, and then when you're thrown together in a room of, you know, with, you know, 10, 5, 10, 15 other people, um, it becomes a whole, it, it can be political theater if you allow it to be. Um, fortunately, you know, when you get to a certain level, you're the one who sets that tone. Um, but when you're moving up, um, you really need to sort of just read the room and know uh, what the various personalities are so you don't step on so many to- toes. You can speak too much. You can speak too little. It just depends on whatever room that you're in. Yeah. I think you also kind of need to be able, at, once you're at a certain level, and this comes with experience, is develop the ability to safely articulate the anxiety of the room about a story (laughs) um, in a way that, like, everybody can then sort of get their arms around why things are bothering them, but it doesn't enhance that anxiety. It's like, okay, so now we can get it, and now we can start to break it down, and now we can start to figure out why these things are problems and kind of how we can solve them, Um, which gets back to what Sarah said about being an idea machine, that you should constantly be pitching and pitching solutions, not saying, this is a thing that I have a problem with, but saying, these are things that work. Here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. And here's why. Uh, I'll add one little thing to that, which is um, when the showrunner is in the room, the room is different than when the showrunner is not in the room. And one of the things that you, regardless of your level, have to know is that the first thing the showrunner wants, 99% of the time when he or she walks in the room, is a status report of what's going on, what are you doing, pitch me the board, let me, let me catch up as quickly as possible because I'm probably getting pulled out by a phone call. So if you're on the lower level especially, shut up, shut up and let the, the, whoever's running the room report. Then after the conversation has been open and the showrunner goes, okay, I think this, 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 and this, yeah, then everybody talk. Yeah. Until then, wait. And, and the key don't is, like, is not to point out the problems and be the person that points out the flaws in your story. Be the person that has the solution to a problem. Even if it's not the right one, um, at least show that you're, you're supportive of improving what's there and, and that you're not, you know, you're not there to just sort of like, you know, pull every, every loose thread in a storyline. Uh, we don't need the people who idea it. <laughs> we need the people who can solve it. Other questions? We only have a few more minutes. Yeah. 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 Jose, you want to take that? Um, I think the most important thing everybody here will say is what's on the page. We're going to read your work, and we're going to figure out how how much we like your writing. And 
if you're a good showrunner, you'll also take into account what level you're in. You know, you don't expect a staff writer to write at supervising producer level. If you're breaking in, uh, unfortunately, the easiest way to break in is to know somebody, to work on a show as an assistant, or to know somebody who knows somebody. Um, in terms of what we're looking for, people that play well with others, so people that have references is also is always good. Uh, but it's the page, and then when you have your showrunner meeting with the person who has the job, be as enthusiastic as you possibly can without blowing smoke. Um, if it's a show that lends itself to you pitching ideas, come in with ideas and be ready to riff on the moment. Show in that meeting, because that if you make it, if you made it there, you're this close to getting that job. But I would say we had somebody come in recently on a show. I was on uh, for a, a writer's assistant position, but we liked somebody better. But then we needed a staff writer, so we were looking at the. We really liked this person, so we were like we were thinking, oh, maybe they could be the staff writer, you know, and. Um, so we looked at the material, but the material wasn't very good, and so that didn't happen. But it would have been they would have it would have made their career sort of. So it just make sure your material while you're sitting at home before you have that is as good as it possibly can be. Mm-hmm. Show it to your friends, show it to people you know, hone it, you know, work on it. When you think it's great, keep working on it um, because you really it's that old cliche: have one chance to make a first impression. And this is something speaking to that that I learned from. Excuse me while I name drop Jim Cameron. Um, that you you put it out there immediately, like Mark is saying. Show your friends, show the caterer, show anybody. Do not be afraid of getting feedback. Uh, and Jim was incredibly brave about that when he when he was starting out. Like he gave his drafts of Alien to Sigourney Weaver, and she would go, "This is all wrong. This is all wrong. How about this? I like that." And by exposing it, it got better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, last one or two questions before we run out of time. Yes. Well, how do you meet writers and socialize with them? Well, Steve, you're Look to the left, and then look to the right. I was like, where do I hang out? In my living room, watching reruns of The West Wing? Um, um, if, I would say if you're new to Hollywood, social media is such a like hotbed of activity. And also, like, don't just try to get to know writers. Get to know, try to know other people at your level because those people are going to become writers. And I find that when you force it, it gets awkward and creepy. Yeah. So just, you know. <laughs> and we got to wrap it up. So one last come question. Come to my living room. <laughs> um, I'm a screenwriter who specializes in <laughs> Congratulations. That means you're a screenwriter. Mm. <laughs> uh, I'm Canadian, and what I'm hearing from uh, managers is they, they won't send Canadians to staff-level positions because the studios say, no, it's too much hassle. We'll take the American market. So is that true, or also do I have to work in Canada? There are a lot of opportunities now for Canadian writers. Mm-hmm. There's so much. The Sci-Fi Channel is basically becoming the Canadian Sci-Fi Channel. It's all Canadian Sci-Fi co-production. It's all, you yeah. know, all those sh- low-license fee shows they're doing mm-hmm. are all Canadian content. And it's like there's so many opportunities. A lot of if you're Canadian, I would knock on those doors first, don't you think? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, was, I was on a sci-fi show, show at one point where they were like, you may only hire Canadians. You'll end up on something wicked cool. And you shot a, uh, a show in Canada, but that's a whole yeah. other story. Um, listen, thank you for coming inside the writer's room. We'll see you in San Diego. Chris Parnell will be back and hopefully his microphone. Thank you so much. Follow everybody on Twitter. Now leaving Nerdist.com.